we pick up with Matthew chapter 23. This chapter is preparation for chapters 24 and 25. Chapters 24 and 25 present the condemnation and judgment that is going to come on Jerusalem. Jesus is very clear that Jerusalem and the people of God, the Israelites, the people of God, the Jews, are going to be judged. And in chapter 23, he presents the indictment upon which the judgment will fall. But prior to him getting into the specific indictment, he first gives warnings to his followers, to the, to the crowds, but also to his twelve, his disciples. And uh, we hear these warnings. We'll take two weeks to study this text through verse 8 this week, um, or verse 7. Um, Let us hear the word of God. Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. And they tie up heavy loads and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments, and they love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplace. John Jacob Jingleheimer Schmidt, that's my name too. Remember that song? Whenever I go out, the people always shout, there goes John Jacob. Okay. Respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called by men rabbi, but do not be called rabbi for one is your teacher and you are all brothers and do not call anyone on earth your father for one is your father he who is in heaven and do not be called leaders for one is your leader that is Christ. But the greatest among you shall be your servant and whoever exalts himself shall be humbled and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Now, the first thing we have to notice as we begin this chapter is that this is Jesus speaking. And if you have made an idol of God, and if your Jesus has the long blonde hair and the feminine face and is a metrosexual who always has soft, gentle things to say, and you don't recognize the Jesus of this text You do not know Jesus. This Jesus is not in opposition to the Jesus of all those soft pictures in the Bible story books. This is the real Jesus. And this Jesus points to the judgment seat of God. And if in our relationship with one another, as mothers with our children, as fathers with our children, as elders, as judges, as lawyers, if our relationship with people do not show the holiness and justice of God, as well as the long-suffering gentleness and patience and kindness and love of God, then we're lying about the nature of God. This is Jesus. This is not the Apostle Paul. We'd all believe this was the Apostle Paul. Well, he was a nasty dude. We'd believe even that it was Matthew making it up, but we have trouble believing it's Jesus. This is Jesus. This is an accurate picture of Jesus. Uh, Some of the commentators say that this Jesus is, quote, ruthless, quote, harsh, quote, unfair. And some commentators on this text say that this Jesus presented here is libelous. In other words, this Jesus is lying about the nature of the scribes and Pharisees. 
No, he's not lying. He's telling the truth, and this is Jesus. Now, what does he say? What is it that he actually says? Well, he speaks to the multitude and his disciples. In a few verses, he'll turn and directly address the scribes and the Pharisees. He speaks to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, verse 2, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. The chair of Moses was the prominent place up front where those who were representatives of the law of God. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Moses received the law of God on the top of Mount Sinai when God wrote it on a tablet of stone. These leaders, the scribes and Pharisees, are seated in the seat of Moses. In other words, they're Moses' representatives today. They bear Moses' law. They bear Moses' authority. They are the religious leaders of their time carrying on the authority of Moses. Now, who was the most revered leader of Israel? Probably Moses. And so here they have Moses' authority. He says these men have seated themselves in Moses' seat. All right? In the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe. Well, this is no surprise, is it? If you have the authority of Moses and you're told to do something, you'll do it. Right? If they're seated in the seat of Moses, that means they represent all the spiritual authority of their time. And so if they tell you to do something, you do it. If an elder comes to you and tells you that they would like you to come to a small group training meeting, you do it. Right? If an elder comes to you and an elder says, could you come help us put uh, the mulch down? Aren't you glad I used the right word that time? <laughs> um, you'll do it. And so even today, we have men seated in the seat of Moses who are our elders. And when they tell us to do things, godly people will do them when an elder tells them to do something. You know, think of your father in the home, your mother in the home being the authority seated in the seat of Moses. In other words, anybody in a position of authority is seated in an authoritative seat and you do what they say. These seats are similar to the chairs spoken of in the university today. So somebody so-and-so is the chair of the English department. The chair of the English department tells you to do something. You do it. All right. And Jesus is not undercutting authority here. Jesus says these men have seated themselves in the seat of Moses. So what they tell you to do, do. We would like to read scripture in the post French Revolution, post American Revolution, Liberty, Fraternity, Equality Day, as if it is the American uh, political, uh, cultural ideology, namely abject rebellion against all authority. And we'd like to think that what Jesus is doing here is Jesus is like exposing the authority so that all of you will be warned never ever to submit to people in positions of religious authority again. Right? I mean, if you look what he says about these people in the coming chapter, you think, how on earth can he start the whole section off by saying what they tell you to do, do. I love what Bishop J.C. Ryle says about this. 
pointing out our tendency in things like this. He says, the duty here placed before us is one of great importance. There's a constant tendency in the human mind to go to extremes, either over here or over here, never in the middle. If we don't regard the position of a minister with idolatrous veneration, we are apt to treat it with indecent contempt. We need to be on guard against both these extremes. However much we may disapprove of a minister's practice or dissent from his teaching, we must never forget to respect his position. We must show that we can honor the commission, whatever we think of the officer that holds it. You know. The example of St. Paul on a certain occasion is worth noticing when Paul said, brothers, I didn't realize that he was the high priest. For it is written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. What they tell you to do, do. But then Jesus goes on. But do not, verse 3, second half, but do not do according to their deeds. For they say things and do not do them. So here's the nature of the religious leaders at the time of Jesus. Um, They're to be obeyed. You do what they tell you to do, but don't do what they themselves do because they say one thing and do the other. Uh, They don't practice what they preach. Now, what does the Apostle Paul say many times in his letters to the church? Many, many times the Apostle Paul says, uh, let me read from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. So the Apostle Paul was able to say to the, the sheep and his flock, do what I do, imitate me. But Jesus says, don't imitate the scribes and the Pharisees. Do what they say, but don't do what they do. Why? Because they themselves were not obedient to the things that they claimed other people should obey. Do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. Jesus points to the men sitting up front, likely up front facing the people, to see who's there and who's not, but more to be seen themselves. The scribes and Pharisees, all up front, able to be seen, seated in Moses' seat, and tells the people to do what they say, but not what they do. Now, why? Well, there are a number of reasons. But it begins with this reason at the second half of verse 3, for they say things and do not do them. The scribes and Pharisees didn't practice what they preached. They were hypocrites saying one thing and do another. But then beyond that, verse 4, they tie up heavy loads, Jesus says, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. So they bind men's consciences, piling up the ways men may offend and sin against God, but doing nothing to help men please God and doing nothing to help men find relief for their consciences. Laws upon laws, rules upon rules, details upon details, but no hope of mercy and grace and forgiveness. Now, what were these heavy loads they tied up and put on men's shoulders? Well, if you read the Gospels, you'll find that all through the Gospels, there are confrontations between Jesus and the scribes and Pharisees and between his disciples and them. 
What do they center around? Well, the ones you know best probably are the laws having to do with the Sabbath. So let's just take the Sabbath laws as an example of how they tie up burdens and lay them on men's shoulders. At the time of Jesus, what the Pharisees had done is they had said, look, what we have to do is obey God's law. We've got to be very, very careful to obey God's law. Now, if we're going to obey God's law and keep it, and if that's how we please God, what we need to do is we need to embroider around the edge and put up a whole bunch of laws around the law that really matters so that people will never even get near disobeying the law that matters. And that's how you can understand all their regulations, their picky uni regulations about the Sabbath. So, for instance, since the Sabbath was to be kept holy and God was very serious about this, they would look for places where somebody might begin to violate the Sabbath and they'd say, let's put up a boundary there. So, for instance, if it's wrong to work on the Sabbath, then you need to think about what work is. Well, work is like when a woman like puts on lipstick or like combs her hair or, or rouge or plucks an eyebrow or something like that. Now, some of that they didn't have, but some they did. OK, so if that's work and you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath then what we better do is think about what might tempt a woman to do that. Well, what tempts a woman to do that? A mirror. So you were not allowed to look in a mirror on the Sabbath because a mirror might tempt you to pluck your eyebrow. And thereby work. And so everything they did was like that. You know, another one was that it it was work to practice medicine. And so... Uh, you didn't want anybody to set a leg in such a way that would heal on the Sabbath. You could set a leg if the person was in excruciating pain, because that's mercy. But you couldn't set a leg if it was for the purpose of healing it. All right. And there were tons of rules like this. Now, none of us have difficulty understanding this. I'm not going to do this seriously, but kind of as a joke, I'll tell you that I despise those little plastic plugs that mothers put into outlets. Because what I think is a child should just know the outlet is dangerous. <laughs> you know, why set up more barriers so that the child, well, he has to get through the plug and then, you know, he can go up and suck on the plastic Plug, but what if his saliva goes behind it, you know? Why not just teach them to stay away from outlets, right? And you can see how the Pharisees are looking for all these danger points, and then they're surrounding them with all these things that are rules that are to keep you from actually violating what? What God said. You see, all the rules around aren't what God said. The rules around are all what? They're man's rules. They're not God's rules. And so, for instance, parents that don't want their children to fornicate, their child comes to them. My dad used to use this as an illustration. Their child comes to them and says, Mom, can I go to prom? And the mother says, well, you'll have to ask your father. So the child goes to the dad and says, Dad, can I go to prom? And, and the father says, no, you can't go to prom. And the child says, why? And, and the father says, well, because, you know, there are so many bad things that go on there. And the child says, yeah, but I won't do those bad things. And the father says, well, I don't even want you to be tempted by them. So no, you may not go to prom. Now, I'm not going to say that's wrong. We all make decisions and they're your children, not mine. And I don't want to decide whether your children go to prom or not. 
I tend to be sort of skeptical about proms. But they're your children, they're not mine. But you get the idea. The idea is, is it actually sinful to go to prom? Well, drugs and motel rooms for 17-year-olds and fornication and sexual dancing are destructive to our souls and the souls of our children. And you say, well, yeah, and that's, that's, that's intrinsic to prom. That's what prom is. I mean, what else is prom? I say, yeah, you have a point. But my point is, we all have to make these judgments. And what the Bible forbids is not drinking alcohol. I thought we were talking about prom. <laughs> well, we are. <laughs> the Bible forbids getting drunk. Oh, but let's be teetotalers then. That may be what you decide, but remember, the Pharisees surrounded the law of God with a whole bunch of other picayune laws so that you would never even get close to obeying the law of God. And so what did they produce? They produced conformity to the religious leaders. And you know what? Surprise, surprise, the only people that could keep the laws the Pharisees set up were the rich people that lived in town. Does this make sense to you? You had to be rich to keep the law. You couldn't be poor and keep the law. Why? Because you didn't have control over your life the way rich people do. You couldn't spend your whole life trying to conform yourself to the picayune laws that the Pharisees had set up. So somehow the poor people who worked with their hands for a living and had blisters ended up not quite making it into Jewish holiness. Does that surprise us? No. And so it was ceremonial ablutions or hand washing. It was the Sabbath. It was all these picayune laws. And so Jesus says to them, they tie up burdens and put them on your shoulders, but they don't lift a finger to help you with them. Now, what does it mean they don't lift a finger to help you with them? Well, number one, if your life is consumed trying to hold to the standard of your religious leaders, what do you learn about justice and mercy and long-suffering and forgiveness through our Father God? Well, you don't learn much because, after all, if you speak about forgiveness to people that have burdens, then they might decide that they'll sin that grace may abound. You can't speak about forgiveness to them. You have to keep them disciplined. So you think of the drill sergeant, you know, at boot camp. Keep them disciplined. You know, if their mother sends them cookies, make fun of their mother and everything soft in their life. And so that's what the Pharisees were. They were just like... And they never lifted a finger. Do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and don't do them. They tie up heavy loads, lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. For they broaden their phylacteries. What were phylacteries? Well, phylacteries were little uh, leather boxes that you'd tie on with leather bands, uh, thongs, and you'd put them uh, across your forehead, and you'd put them here on your left arm so they're close to your heart. Because the Bible says that you should bind them on your forehead and carry them in your heart, the law of God. And so they literally did it. All right. And they would broaden their phylacteries. Why? Because it was a way of cutting a good figure in the eyes of the people. It made you heavenly minded. It made it clear that you had a phylactery. It was a big phylactery. 
And the tassels, they lengthened. Why? Because the Old Testament commanded them to wear tassels. It was a way of distinguishing between God's people and other people. So they make theirs particularly long so that you could cut a good figure. All right? And they did all of this to be seen by men. And then verse 6, And they loved the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplace and being called by men rabbi. So, do we have any problem understanding this? What are the seats of honor today? Well, the seats of honor are, um, you know those three chairs in the churches we all grew up in? They're up on the platform, and the senior pastor has the biggest one. That's the seat of honor. Or the Pope Mobile. You know, everybody goes to Rome once in their life and kisses his hand, or his ring, or whatever you kiss, and he's got the mitre. And he's got the throne and all that stuff. Is that a seat of honor? Have you ever watched TBN, Trinity Broadcasting Network? Have you seen the preachers sitting there in their gold rooms with their uh, feminine baby blue carpet and the women with big hair next to them? And they and their wives are seated on thrones. Right? What about the honorable names? What do you call me? Pastor Bailey. You don't just say Tim, do you? Now, really, we'll get into the names more next week, but really, the name Pastor is not a big deal. Uh, it's not nearly as big a deal as the most right, venerable, renovable, honorable, His Highness, His Holiness, His Eminence, His, you know, all these titles that churches have. Anglicans are really good at titles. I mean, they go on and on. His Most Holy Reverend Bishop, Archbishop of Canterbury, His Grand Poobah, you know, His Eminence, right? Um, but you know something? Nothing, nothing the Protestant world has comes close to the titles of the academy. Because we really are, are not spiritual. What we are is academic. And you know how you know that the ultimate title in our culture is the academy and not the church? Because every time NPR comes on, they always tell you where the man teaches, what, where he's a professor. They always, professor so-and-so. And then you know you're getting the straight dope. And if they brought a preacher on, you'd know that you were about to be boondoggled. I mean, we've all seen the morality play this last week about what asses preachers are, right? You know, John Hagee and our poor, pitiful Republican candidate for president falling all over himself, trying to distance himself from anything approximating biblical faith. Now, I'm not a dispensational. I don't agree with John Hagee's doctrine. But my point is, we first saw a pastor write, and, and what are pastors today? They're idiots. You know, They say things that all of us know can't be true because everybody disapproves of them, and that means they can't be true. Didn't you know that? I mean, it's self-evident. got an email this last week after... I preached the sermon at my daughter's wedding. The email was from a probably 23, 24-year-old 
Bloomingtonian. He may be here today. I've never met him. And he went on and on about how awful what I said in, in, in the sermon at my daughter's wedding was and how he was going to do everything he could to expose this church and this community. What was my fault? Well, principally my fault was that I said that sodomy is sin. Well, we all know that can't be true because nobody agrees with you. That's what he actually said. I mean, don't you realize that the world has changed? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you know, duh, duh, uh, I never knew the world. had. I'm sorry, but I just having lived in Boulder, Madison and now Bloomington, it's so yawnish. It's so boring. It's so predictable. It's so disgusting. Of course I know the world has changed, but I'm under authority. I answer to God. And so, this is my daughter's wedding, and I want her to hear truth. And I want everybody there to hear truth. And so what we see is that today, what is really valued in our country is not the title of rabbi in the church, but the title of rabbi in the academy. You understand this. And those of you who are getting doctorates better watch out. Because that doctorate makes anything anybody would ever call me to be absolutely laughably silly, stupid, dumb, insignificant. I mean, if I'm called pastor, all it is to most people is a way of making me look stupid. I have never had somebody call me pastor and felt good about it. And when they call me reverend, I feel like I've been cut off at the knees. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't refer to spiritual leaders in a way that shows honor to them, but I'm just trying to say this is our culture. Now, what is the application? The application of this stuff is that, number one, you cannot read what Jesus says and not realize that Jesus believes, Jesus knows, and Jesus is teaching us that we must judge our spiritual leaders. You can't get through this text without realizing that Jesus is telling you to be discerning and to judge those in spiritual authority. You have to judge them. You have to obey them. You have to judge them. And then he tells you on what basis to judge them. See if everything they do is for show. See if they love the seats of honor. See whether or not their phylacteries and their tassels are long. In other words, do they wear Brooks Brothers suits and bow ties? William F. Buckley's funeral. A guy in the New Yorker wrote that everybody that showed up there who was a woman had a hat on and every man that showed up had a bow tie. In other words, you have to contextualize this. It's not going to be phylacteries for me. What is it? My ties, my suits, right? That's what it's going to be. Where I sit, well, it's not going to be Moses' seat. We don't have Moses' seat. Where's Moses' seat? So what will it be for us? Will it be, do I have the corner office with two windows? Will it be, do I have a special parking spot? Will it be that every time people around me, you can see them fawning over me? You know, that they're like doing obeisance to me. You've got to judge me. And if this isn't your church, you have to judge your pastor. Now, one final thing. 
What this text shows us is that another way to judge your pastor is whether or not he helps you with your burden of sin. How would a pastor help you with your burden of sin? Well, if you have a pastor that will help you with your burden of sin, it will be okay to confess sin to him. If you can imagine yourself going to your pastor and confessing your sin to your pastor, then that's an indication that he's a real shepherd after God's own heart. If you can't conceive of doing it, and you can't conceive of what he would say if you did it, that's an indication that your pastor is not a shepherd after God's own heart. In other words, the purpose of being a pastor is to help you bear your burden of sin. So if you think your pastor doesn't sin, he's not a good pastor. If you think your pastor doesn't pray for you and doesn't carry your failures and your sins in his heart, and if you think sitting in the, in the pews on Sunday morning that what your pastor is saying has absolutely no application to your personal, private, secret sins, if you've never felt personally called out on Sunday morning, you don't have a pastor. Or if you do, your pastor isn't lifting a finger to help you bear the burdens that he puts on you. If you've never seen your pastor cry about your children, if you've never seen your pastor rebuke your children and risk your wrath because he rebuked your children, you don't have a pastor. You have to judge your spiritual leaders and you have to see them bearing your burden. You should be able to see that when that child speaks to you as his mother with disrespect, that your pastor takes it like it's an arrow in his heart. And you see fire coming out of his eyes towards your child. And then you quick jump in and say, oh, let me handle it. And he says, no, I'll handle it. I actually did that to Dawn once. <laughs> she all of a sudden became very defensive of this rebellion little, rebellious little boy of hers. But I smuckered him. Now, I'm not saying I'm a good pastor. I'm just saying... These are typical examples. If I once discipline your child, it could be that I just got up on the wrong side of bed in the morning. You've got to look at where I sit, what I dress, where my car is parked, what my office is like, how people treat me, how, whether I bear your burdens, whether your elders bear your burdens, whether sin is okay to be talked about, because that way we bear one another's burdens. All right? We're out of time. There's nothing in Scripture that, that gives you the ability to, to not judge your pastor. You have to judge him. You have to judge your elders. Now, there's a lot of people here from David Carell's family, and I'm going to talk just a second as I end. You know how the Apostle Paul often mentions men and women by name and rebukes them, condemns them, and commends them. I commend Dave Carell. You should know that your son is a gift of God to me and to us. Eh? I mean, he will bear our burdens any time we ask him to, and this is my way of keeping him from telling me I'm out of time and to shut up. <laughs> Thank <laughs>
And actually, because you're here, I know you're going to think, don't worry, we have two out of three. The third one is a scoundrel. That's me. But since you're here and you're his mother, it's absolutely true. It's Stephen, too. These guys are fantastic. David will bear the burden. He'll cry with you. He'll exhort you. He will come to your house and fix your gutter. And if he fixes your gutter, he'll bear your sins. He took the office without a window. Now, all right, I won't say it. (laughs) David and I have a running joke about that. Everything about him is a faithful shepherd. He's a sinner, I know. And so we're celebrating their 25th wedding anniversary, but you should know that we love him. Hey? Hey? Yeah? 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 See? Go ahead, say it again, Bob. Bob just went. All right, I'm out of time. Um, Thank God for the men that I get to work with. They are fantastic. Thank God for our elders. Thank God for my mama and my papa. My mother who bore my burdens in high school and oh, did it cost her. Thank God for godly leaders. Let's pray.